0: A Podcast One production.
1: Las Vegas. At the start of every year, a quarter million people descend on Sin City to have a play with the latest gadgets. CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, is one of the largest trade fairs in the world and probably the most fun. Here you see the new, the cool, and the just plain weird. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and in this first episode of The Next Billion Gadgets, we'll tour the show floor at CES, looking at how AI is making our homes smart, how our smartphones can help our faces get smooth, asking why we need so much technology just to mow the lawn, and importantly, does anyone need an 8K telly with four times the resolution of a 4K display? Well, the gadgets are coming home on this episode of The Next Billion Gadgets. Consumer Electronics used to just be a small part of the economy. Now it's a massive and growing part of the economy. Our lives are filled with all sorts of devices and gadgets, and even the devices and gadgets that we used to think were just normal and weren't particularly smart, all of them are getting smarter all of the time. And If I were going to take one gadget that I've seen this year at CES and say, this is pointing at the future. This is where we need to be going with our gadgets because it reveals something about what happens when a gadget gets smart. Then it's going to be the Kohler Smart Faucet. Now, Kohler has been making plumbing faucets for, goodness knows, a hundred years, probably more. They're in many homes in Australia. They're certainly in many homes in America. They're a well-known, very established brand. And, of course, you think, well, it's a faucet. It's got a washer. It's got some things inside of it that open and close valves. And it's not really that exciting, except now it is because... The washer has been replaced by something that's electronic, and now the faucet has gotten smart. And so what they've done is they've actually now taken the idea of an electronic device and then connected that to the systems such as Alexa, such as Google Assistant, such as HomeKit, which is what Apple uses for Siri, all of these platforms, allow you to talk to devices, allow you to connect the devices together. Once you connect the device together, you can do interesting things. Now, I walked up to this demonstration thinking, "Eh," connected faucet, but I actually walked away blown away. Have a listen and hear why. So we're talking to Jason Keller from Kohler. Not to get any of that confused about Kohler Connect, which is the world's first smart kitchen faucet. Tell me what, what that Correct.
2: means. Yes, absolutely. So uh, our Kohler sense faucet, faucet, uh, touchless faucet, we introduced about five years ago. Uh, with the introduction of Alexa and Google and Apple HomeKit, uh, we can now uh, introduce voice connectivity with this faucet. So Why do uh, I want to talk to my faucet? Sure, absolutely. So you've got, uh, the kitchen is a very busy place. It can also be a very dirty place that you want to keep very clean. Uh, This allows hands-free operation to uh, pour one cup of water or fill your pasta pot or your coffee uh, pot uh, with preset or total uh, measured pour. So in other words, the pasta might know that say it's two or three liters to fill my pasta bowl. So you would set that in a, that would be a particular personalized preset through the Color Connect app. Uh, Anything specific like four cups, two liters, that sort of thing, uh, that it do without any presets, but if you've got some of your favorite things you want to preset, uh, like your coffee pot or your pasta pot, then you would do that.
1: So I really like the idea of a faucet that is smart enough that I can walk up to it and say, hey, could you pour me one liter of water? Or could you pour me one teaspoon of water? And it will do that. Or even if I could say, could I have water at exactly 63 degrees and have the faucet work that out and then give me that temperature of water? That starts to become more of an instrument for cooking and not just something that's bringing water into the kitchen. So there's this idea that intelligence has a place in our lives but there's an overall theme this year at CES that it's everywhere AI AI is in everything AI isn't this AI isn't that and you really do get the sense that it's more marketing spin then it really is the truth. Because the number of instances where there's real AI in things is still relatively rare, still relatively hard to do AI, still requires fairly sophisticated computing. You know, when you're using Alexa, when you're using Siri, what you're doing is you're just recording your voice and then sending it off to massive computers that are at Amazon or that at Apple that are actually doing all of the artificial intelligence of processing what you're saying, turning it into meaning, and then doing the thing that you're asking it to do. And so for the whole world of consumer electronics to actually suddenly acquire artificial intelligence, that's not happening. Now, there are supposedly 100 million devices out there that are Alexa-aware. Google says there are a billion devices out there that are Google Assistant-aware. So there are a lot of things that you can talk to now. But are there a lot of things that are intelligent now? And this is exactly the question that we asked our frequent guest and contributor, Dr. Genevieve Bell from Intel, who's also at the show. Are we really seeing things getting intelligent? Here's what she had to say. Genevieve, I'm seeing a lot of promotion of AI as a thing this year, like everything's getting AI slapped on it. What's going on here?
0: Listen, Mark, I think there's two things going on. First of all, I think there's a lot of conflation of AI with three things, advanced data analytics process automation and decision augmentation and AI is an easy label for those things but you and I both know that kind of the promise of AI was always something that had some vague degree of autonomy and independence and a capacity to learn right and most of those objects don't do that right I think the other thing that's going on is this is part of a longer story so it's always tempting to see CES in the year that you visit it but you have to remember this has been going on for a very long time and many of the same objects that we are now seeing with an AI wrapper we saw with an internet of things wrapper and an embedded wrapper and a smart and connected kind of story tied around it. And I think it's an attempt in some ways to keep bringing these devices with us into the 21st century. And AI is the next way to do that, right? To say this is more than just a digital object. There is a promise here. And the promise is now that it's going to be intelligent, which is remarkably, you know, the next expansion of smart, connected, internet-enabled.
1: I mean, two, three years ago, it was the Bluetooth-connected toothbrush, right? And everyone giggled, but it's like, okay, it's going. am I going to walk around and see an AI-enabled toothbrush this year?
0: No, but you are going to see people starting to try and find ways of talking about objects with a degree of predictiveness, so kind of a proactiveness. Uh, You know, I've walked the floor here... At CES and you know, I've seen a number of things that are in that space. You know, smart egg timers, people thinking about new forms of learning systems for washing machines and refrigerators and lawnmowers. And
1: kitty litter trays.
0: And kitty litter trays. I was trying to not have that one be top of mind. But yeah, so when people are really trying to work out what would it mean to start adding to these already connected objects and ability to be a little bit more either proactive or perceptive and I think that's you know where the pivot really is
1: Okay, so it looks like what we're seeing more often is some smarts and some software being put into a device. And adding that layer of smarts is justifying these companies calling it artificial intelligence, even though it's probably not, in most cases, artificial intelligence. And I think one of the great examples of where this is right on the line, and I wouldn't say that the manufacturer of this device is talking up the AI, but they are talking up the smarts of the device, is an autonomous Lawnmower. Now, this is a great thing. I mean, I grew up mowing my own lawn and then mowing all the lawns in the neighborhood. I made a fairly good living out of that in the summertime. But, of course, lawn mowing is kind of drudgery. You're just pushing this thing back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And a couple of years ago, they put enough smarts into a lawnmower that they could actually start to mow the lawns. You know, you have to actually basically put out guide wires so the lawnmower sort of knows the area that it's meant to cover and then it will go and cover it. As these lawnmowers have been going through successive generations, they've been getting smarter and smarter and smarter. And so we sat down with Bosch, who has a whole line of these, because they have a new mower called the Indigo S Plus. And listen to Luke Colton from Bosch tell us about how it is smart and how it learns as it's mowing your lawn.
2: So Indigo S Plus is, like you say, an autonomous lawnmower. It's the smartest autonomous lawnmower on the market and I'll tell you why. So every single robotic lawnmower, just for some small, uh, <laughs> small lesson, has a perimeter wire. And what that means is there's a little green wire here. You wire out the areas you would like to mow and not mow. Right. And based on that, it will mow inside this area. Okay. That's, that's the number one. Indigo is the only robotic lawnmower on the market that follows this wire all the way around it will hit the dock and say, ah, that's the dock. It will then build up uh, a graphical representation of your lawn or a map in its memory. And the map looks like this on the app, which you can't see right now. So
1: basically, every time it runs over the lawn, it's scanning the lawn and it's learning about the lawn. It, the very first time it does that, right. it does
2: that. And it then builds up the kind of the boundary of the lawn. So this is the outline of the lawn. Also, inside, like you say, if it encounters a permanent obstacle, if it hits it three times, it will say, Ah, that must be a permanent obstacle and it will wire it out and it will void it in the future. So if you see this little grey bit here, that is an obstacle that has hit three times. And it's gone, ah, I shouldn't mow there again because there's a permanent obstacle. Now how long how much lawn can it mow on a single charge? So it runs for 45 minutes So how many square meters would that That's cost? around 35 square meters Okay And then it charges for 45 minutes So autonomously goes back to charge So on a 400 square meter um, Size garden it will take 11 hours. That's 45 minutes mowing, 45 minutes charging a few times. And that is 30 conservatively to 50% quicker than any competitor. And the reason why is because we mow your lawn in a logical way, we're the only ones that know where we have mown and not mown due to the map of the lawn. So we come out of the dock, on the let's say it's gone back to charge. We come out of the dock and we go to an area where we haven't mown yet because that's the logical thing to do. And that's more efficient. Competitors will just go out and just mow randomly. So like if you're playing snooker and you just do a break and the balls just go everywhere and they bounce off cushions, they will eventually get everywhere. It's just super inefficient. Now, is
1: that learning? Yes, it absolutely is learning. It's learning when new things show up in the lawn. So there's learning going on there. Is it what Genevieve would consider artificial intelligence? No, it's simpler than that but it does learn. And that learning means that it's a big deal because when you now have devices that are capable of both scanning the environment and then responding to that environment by changing what they do in that environment, that means you now have a new generation devices that are learning. And this is good because it means that we don't have to teach them every single thing. They can learn things on their own. It's also going to be weird because when things start learning things on their own, they start behaving differently. And they may be behaving in ways that don't fulfill our expectations for that device. It's easy to imagine that a lawnmower could encounter some obstacle that it thinks is a real thing, but isn't actually a real thing. Maybe it's some sort of rise in the ground, or someone dropped a twig, or whatever it might be, and so you might see the lawnmower learn a false pattern of how to mow the lawn. And So there's going to be a process not just of the lawnmower learning, but of the people who are using the lawnmower, and the people who are designing the lawnmower working out all all of the areas that they need to improve our understanding of how the lawnmower learns over time to make that better. Because the big thing that we're going to see here is that learning is not a one-off. You can't just throw learning at something. Once you throw learning at something, you then have to be able to deal with the consequences of the fact that that device is learning and that its behavior is going to change over time. But if what we've learned at CES this year is any indication that basic idea will be applied to almost every device that we own you 're listening to the next billion gadgets with Mark Pesci, and we will be right back Welcome back to the next billion gadgets. This is Mark Pesci from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Okay, one of the big themes this year beyond AI is a transition now from high-definition or ultra-high-definition television, as we call it, or 4K, as it's also called, to the next generation, 8K. And you're thinking, wait a minute, I just bought a 4K television, or maybe I'm planning to buy a 4K television this year. We're already going to the next standard in television, and... and Here's something that we don't really talk about in broadcasting. But effectively what happened with the transition to digital broadcasting in television, which, you know, took place effectively around a decade ago, was that all of a sudden it became no longer a hardware question, but often a software question. And so it's fairly easy to be able to upgrade the software to do something from generation to generation to generation. Of course, what that means is that the software keeps on getting better but the displays stay the same. So you might have a high-definition display, you might have an ultra-high-definition display and now they're introducing these 8K displays. And What we're about to see is the transition that we just went through for 4K, where we had entire lines of televisions being sold in the shops that were high definition, and now they're pretty much all 4K sets being sold. Over the next three to five years, you're going to see the 4K sets dwindle away, and now it's going to be 8K sets. Okay, so you're going to buy an 8K set. It's going to cost you about as much as the 4K set does today. I guess that doesn't matter much, but what are you going to do with this? How can we actually use all of that? Already the technology for 4K sets are so sharp. And on the other hand, we have so little content for it. If you have a Stan subscription or perhaps a Foxtel subscription or perhaps a Netflix subscription, you might have some content available to you in 4K if you have enough bandwidth to handle the downloads. And this is the big question that's hanging over Australia in the transition to AK. So we sat down and talked to Angus Jones from LG in Australia, who was at the show, about the transition to AK and what it might mean for Australia. So 4K penetration, I think, is around 30% right now in Australian homes? Uh, it's around about 40, 40%. Okay, so about 40% yeah. percent of homes.
3: Now, to put that in perspective, that we're talking about all the TVs that are owned yes. in Australia. Whereas, if you look at what LG sells, of the 30-odd televisions we've been selling in Australia the last two years, there's only been one model that's not been 4K. Okay. So, so you've already made the whole yeah, transition? Yeah, so there. so from we've made that transition to 4K, but it's because people have got older TVs in their homes that they're not at 4K.
1: Yeah. But people will now be going, okay. I've just bought or I'm just buying a 4K television yeah. set. What's the deal? Why should I be getting? Why should I be getting an 8K television? Okay. So
3: the reality is, as Australians, we spend so much time watching TV, right? And If you're going to watch TV, you might as well watch the best thing that you can. Now, with 4K, one of the things, and we obviously can talk about this about 8K in a minute, but one of the the resistance to going to 4K is actually having content. Right. So today, as you know, you're going to get content from places like Netflix. Foxtel's launched a 4K channel. Stan's got a 4K channel. But the TV stations are only launching in... Uh, so not launching, but they're only providing high definition.
1: Right. So Although th- there is a test channel in four K, because my channel, my my TV yeah. set occasionally picks it up.
3: I'm not aware of that. Yeah. I wasn't aware that we actually that we anyone was actually doing that because the the, the spectrum of available for that's not been yet re- released in Australia. Now to put to, so for the listeners to understand. The difference between standard definition and high definition is four times better resolution. The difference between high definition and ultra high definition, which is 4K, is four times better resolution. If you go to 8K, four times better resolution again. So if you're getting a better, every time you go a step, you're getting four times better picture. But you have got to have the content. You can be watching a 4K, uh, uh, you know, you're watching that Foxtel channel, but if they're only pumping out a 4K signal, you're only still getting 4K. We do, of course, have upscaling in our TVs as well. So if you're watching, say, for example, um, 9HD, and you're watching on a 4K TV, we do have upscaling technology, which essentially is a whole bunch of algorithms that will do smoothing of lines and enhancement of colors and so forth to give you an impression you're actually getting a better picture than the input source that you're actually putting in.
1: So I know that the first big event that's supposed to be broadcast in 8k is the Tokyo Olympics yeah. right so do we think that sort of and that's you know around 18 months from yep. now do we think by that time Australians will be able to get an 8K broadcast of the Olympics the, streaming or somehow so the, the, into their home?
3: The challenge to do that is that you're going to need consistent 80 megabits a second. Okay, so
1: you're going to need that. high quality NBN access to do you're that. You're going
3: to have to have really high quality NBN access. So it's a big jump. Right. It's a and, big, big jump.
1: So it, And again, because it's four times the resolution, almost four times the bandwidth that Correct. you need to be able to handle Correct. It as well. And, again, and I've seen... Netflix manages to deliver with 4K ish yeah, yeah. in eight megabits. Yeah, and it,
3: look, even over satellite, the transponders that 35 megabits a second, of which they're using 25 to get that 4K. So they haven't, even, they've not even. You can't even do it over a satellite because you, you've not got enough. So it's going to be a real challenge to deliver it.
1: Okay, so in the words of Angus Jones, we are all going to have 8K televisions. That's just the next place television is going. We don't need to worry about that. It's just going to happen. It's not going to cost us fantastically more. It's just going to be better television. Will we have anything to see on those TVs? Well, probably the video game platforms will upgrade. They're already upgrading to 4K, and you'll see them starting to upgrade to 8K. So probably in three or four years, the next generation PlayStation or Xbox or PC, whatever it's going to be, will plug into it, and it will make pretty pictures on that display. Will we see Netflix in 8K? Will we see Stan? Will we see Fox down? Well, this... This is a more interesting question because, as he points out, to really do a proper quality 8K signal takes 80 megabits of bandwidth. And, you know, at 7 p.m., when everyone's tuning into Netflix and all of that bandwidth gets shared because you have one line running through the neighborhood and everyone's using it to get all of that data, you're going to find out that there are limits to the way (laughs) we design networks, which can then affect the kinds of content that we can view. And this now becomes, because it's Australia, a political question. In America, it becomes a question. uh, They have this thing called network neutrality, so some content can be delivered uh, faster than other content because it's owned by the cable provider. And we'll probably see the cable provider's Delivering their own for pay content in EK at a very high speeds, and then perhaps content from Netflix or from YouTube or from whoever else might be coming at a much lower speed because the cable provider really doesn't care as much to provide that content. And so we're now starting to see how the delivery networks and the content devices are starting to connect to one another in a way that we hadn't expected a few years ago. Because 10 years ago, all content was broadcast. The broadcast waves were basically the same. It didn't matter whether you were one broadcast provider or another broadcast provider. You'd get the same amount of bandwidth. But now we're seeing how bandwidth and content play into each other and make the consumer technology future a very different landscape. Okay, one other aspect of CES is really interesting this year and that there's an increasing focus on health, there's an increasing focus on wellness, and there's an increasing focus on beauty. And you think beauty and consumer technology? What do you mean? Well, in fact, one of the things that we saw was a skin mask from Neutrogena. Neutrogena is, of course, a big brand in health and beauty products. This skin mask is is a custom mask for an individual, and that custom mask is created by using an app on your smartphone. I'm going to let Karen take it from here.
4: So this is personalized skincare. It's the first and only custom 3D printed mask that's specifically fit to your face shape, where your features are, and has ingredients printed just where you need them. So, so perfectly how do you, how do you get this 3D printed mask that's yes. just for me? So you get it through an app. The app takes a quick selfie, which is a 3D scan of your face so that it's perfectly fit to you, more oval face or heart shaped, So the mask perfectly fits. And then it's putting ingredients right where you need them. through, through our Skin360. It's a tool that's used with sensors and cameras to see what the mirror can't see. It goes beneath the skin to tell you what's going on with your skin and then puts the ingredients in the exact precise place where you need them, prints the mask and ships it to your door.
1: Wow. And so this is all just from side of it. And so an app is basically doing what a good salon or a dermatologist would be doing.
4: Yeah. It's really professional grade measurements of what's happening with your skin and the ingredients that you need to address those issues.
1: Okay. So we've really come full circle. From the kitchen sink all the way to the face mask for your beauty, we can see how technology is touching all of these facets of our life that we thought had nothing to do with technology. And that's part of the story of the Consumer Electronics Show is that every year it shows in ways that are both fun and silly and sometimes weird. And we'll have a whole episode of that coming up that we have all of these ways that technology is touching our lives and changing our expectations for how the world works. Because that's the real story of consumer electronics is that there's this interplay between our technology and our lives and our expectations for the future. Now on the next episode of The Next Billion Gadgets, we'll be joined by correspondent and automotive expert Sally Dominguez to take a look at forward into the future of the car. Now, as the cars that we drive have filled with gadgets, CES has become one of the most important automotive shows in the world, and Sally is an expert in all of this transition. She sat down and talked to the folks who are exhibiting here about the directions that the car is taking, as is being shown at the Consumer Electronics Show. Now, that's the next time on The Next Billion Gadgets. This episode of The Next Billion Gadgets was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci from The Consumer Electronics Show, thanking you for listening.